Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the latest blow from the Supreme Court, this time on whether we'll have a livable planet in the future and what kind of life awaits our children and grandchildren as global warming and climate change already is ravaging our planet and threatening worse to come. Joining us is Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with a joint appointment in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize and in 2020 was elected to the United States Academy of Sciences. And his latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Then with Joe Manchin, Charles Koch and the remaining coal barons celebrating the Supreme Court's ruling in West Virginia versus the EPA, we will go to West Virginia and speak with James Van Nostrand, Director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a Professor of Law at West Virginia University College of Law. We will discuss how the electrical generating companies in the country are already moving away from coal and how this reactionary ruling against the EPA will not stop that trend but will hamstring the government's ability to address the larger issue of climate change and global warming. Then finally, we'll look into the political impact of this latest unpopular ruling and whether young people whose future is being threatened by this decision will show up to vote in November and speak with Michael Gerard, a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation. The director of the Center for Climate Change Law, he also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Mastering Legal Matters, Navigating Climate Change, Its Impacts and Effects on Green Buildings and Trading Programs. And before we go to our first guest, since we are now fully independent, your support for this program is vital to keep us online and on a growing number of radio stations across the country. And while we operate on a low budget, we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org to help ensure that background briefing is sustainable into the future so that we can continue to provide a daily news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests, both at home and abroad. And for those listeners who have issues with PayPal, we now have made it easier to donate simply by credit card. So if you are in a position to give support or have been meaning to but have been unable, please go to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and Earth and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He has received many honors and awards, including the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration's Outstanding Publication Award, selections by the Scientific America as one of the 50 leading visionaries in science and technology, and along with other IPCC authors, he was awarded the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. 
and in 2020 he was elected to the U.S. National Academies of Sciences, and his latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Mann. Uh, thanks, Ian. I would say it's good to be with you, but it's uh, a terrible day for anybody who cares about our, our planet, really. Well, yes, and in fact, what happened today with the Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia versus the EPA, it's, it's the fight to destroy our planet, isn't it? It, it is. What we've seen is uh, this Supreme Court, this uh, truly reactionary Supreme Court, has essentially taken away a series of fundamental rights, uh, the fundamental right to privacy, the right to safety in the face of gun violence, and now the, you know, the ultimate right of all, the right to a livable planet. And indeed, they've also made it pretty clear that with this uh, doctrine that they talk about, the major questions doctrine, they really want to take the country back to the early era of FDR when the Supreme Court was enacting the non-delegation doctrine, which is where this uh, new doctrine that Gorsuch and this uh, ultra-conservative Supreme Court is operating on, which will strip the government of any ability to regulate anything. So they've already gone after OSHA and the, EP- uh, and, uh, yeah. and the uh, CDC, and now they've gone after the EPA. So that seems to yeah, be a, right. a big part of this decision, isn't it? It is essentially undermining the federal government's uh, ability, the executive branch's ability to enforce the the laws of this nation, in in this case, um, laws to protect the people, to protect our environment. Uh, And, you know, to me, it almost speaks to uh, this is a constitutional crisis, in a sense, because it's really the, you know, this this uh, reactionary uh, Supreme Court, the legislative branch trying to seize uh, the uh, authority that is granted to judicial branch to enforce the laws of the nation. So what can we do? We've taken several body blows over the last uh, few days from the Supreme Court. This one is the worst for our children and grandchildren. And the last thing we need is to be paralyzed. So how do we, yeah. how do we bounce back, Michael? Well, there's several things. Uh, first of all, um, you know, we, we need the executive branch to assert its authority. Um, and there's still a lot that uh, the Biden administration can do to enforce the environmental laws that are on the books. Um, so we need you know, the executive branch not to, uh, to retreat from, from this battle. Uh, secondly, we need Congress to pass climate legislation, uh, meaningful climate legislation, whether it's through reconciliation or any other process, we need legislation that will allow the United States to make good on its commitment to the rest of the world to lower its carbon emissions. We're the world's largest carbon polluter historically. And if we are not meeting our obligations, there's no way that other countries are going to be willing to meet theirs. All of this means that we have to turn out in droves. Those of us who care about these fundamental rights, who care about a livable planet, have to turn out in droves in this midterm election and vote for politicians who will work on our behalf, who will work on behalf of us and, 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 and uh, the planet that we occupy and want to leave to our children and grandchildren and vote out uh, politicians, the Republican Party, which has been a rubber stamp for this series of um, efforts, uh, once again, to take away fundamental rights and, and to not advance legislation that serves the public good. 
So in the dissent, which was uh, written by Justice Elena Kagan and joined by Justices Sotomayor and Stephen Breyer, and of course Stephen Breyer stepped down today, and, and yeah. Katanji Brown-Jackson was sworn into the Supreme Court, she wrote in her dissent, Elena Kagan, Today, the courts strips the EPA of the power Congress gave it to respond to the most pressing environmental challenge of our time. Whatever else this court may know about it, it does not have a clue about how to address climate change. Yet, the court today prevents con congressionally authorized agency action to curb power plants' carbon dioxide emissions. The court appoints itself instead of Congress or, or the expert community the decision-maker on climate policy. I cannot yeah. think of many things more frightening. So, that's right, Ian. And, you know, yeah. And that's the, the, summed the, it know, up. Yeah. I mean, Republicans uh, have always railed against um, judicial activism, right? Conservatives have accused uh, Democrats and progressives of engaging in liberal, uh, it, it, in uh, judicial activism when trying to defend basic rights. But these are the fundamental, I mean, these are the most fundamental acts of judicial activism that we have ever seen, literally taking away rights that existed on the book for, uh, books for half a century uh, to protect women, to uh, protect children from gun violence, and to protect, of course, our planet um, from uh, environmental destruction through carbon pollution. And so... This, in my view, is, you know, a judicial branch that is overstepping the, 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 their, their role in the checks and balances um, that, that, you know, that are in place in this nation. And again, the executive branch needs to push back and do everything they can here to enforce the laws that are on the books. And we need to turn out and vote for politicians who will act on our behalf rather than be a rubber stamp for polluters. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize, and in 2020 was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. And his latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. I was just reading, Michael Mann, an article at The Intercept, how Charles Koch purchased the Supreme Court's EPA decision. Yeah. And I must say it makes a very cogent and well-documented argument that this is yeah. a huge victory for Charles Koch. This is something he's been at for decades. He, he has, a, has a long view. And that, in effect, the case itself can be tied directly to Charles Koch. The yeah. challenges are... 27 Republican attorneys general who were supported by the Koch-funded Republican Attorneys General Association. At least five Koch-funded entities have filed amicus briefs in this case. The Cato Institute, which was co-founded by Charles Koch, the Competitive Enterprise Institute, the New Civil Liberties Alliance and the Landmark Legal Foundation and Americans for Prosperity. So the governor of California saying this is a victory for the fossil fuel industry. Oh, How yeah. much is it a victory for Charles Koch? Yeah, well, the, those two things are indistinguishable in a sense. What most people don't realize is, uh, aside from being, um, you know, dark money funders of, um, you know, a right-wing agenda in general, 
the Koch brothers, or I should say Koch brother, because there's just one of the two of them left now, uh, David Koch, um, are also the largest privately held fossil fuel interest. Um, much of their money is invested in fossil fuel uh, refining um, and, and extraction and Pipelines. products. Um, pipelines and products that are uh, based on fossil fuels. Um, and so, you know, this is in their self-interest, of course, and it is in the self-interest of the polluters, ExxonMobil and other fossil fuel companies who have funded many of these um, uh, same organizations, these outfits, these think tanks that have been working for decades to overturn these, these fundamental rights that we're seeing overturned and this just being the latest of them. And so, again, it, it, it points at basic challenges right now to our democracy and to democratic governance and the importance of taking back our government in this next election is maybe our last opportunity to do that. So, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, Michael, you know, these, the, these body blows have been happening thick and fast with women's reproductive rights being taken away the ability for blue states to have gun safety laws. Yeah. I mean, just imagine if that law that the Supreme Court handed down the day before they handed down the, uh, their other decision on, on Roe v. Wade and Casey, imagine what would have happened on January the 6th had that law been in place. All of those, a lot of those people that stormed the Capitol would have had yeah. assault rifles. There would have been unbelievable right. bloodshed. You know, you wonder what planet are they on? Does that well? And some of them did. They they were AK forty sevens that were were seen um, during during that uh, attack. Um, yeah, but on the almost everybody would have had one though. With you know. well, that's exactly right. That's exactly, and, and that's clearly what our president wanted, based on the latest revelations from the January six um, hearings. You know, again, this is this is almost a logical. Um, extension of 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 of, of the, the assault on basic rights and basic protections we've seen over the last several weeks. It, it was almost expected that we would see once again. Now you know the, the in a sense revocation of the, the greatest of all rights that we have, the right to a livable planet through this decision. Because as you alluded to, Ian, this is really sort of a wedge that the court is putting in there so that they can begin to undermine uh, the ability of the federal government to, um, to really enforce any regulations uh, against air and water pollution. Um, this is just the first of, you know, what we can expect will be, you know, uh, additional decisions of this sort. Um, you know, there's one last remedy, of course, uh, if Democrats can gain a larger majority in Congress in the midterm elections, um, there may be the possibility of filibuster reform and as well, the president has to consider the possibility of expanding this court. Well, I was going to say that the, you know, these body blows are becoming thick and fast. You know, after the gun decision, there were massive demonstrations around the country and, and likewise with the striking down women's reproductive rights. So, we can't keep marching, marching and marching for different causes. We've all, right. you know, we've all got to get together now and realize that there's sort of one cause that uh, we all have to sort of join in against, and that is 
this reactionary Supreme Court and these rulings to take away the ability to have a livable planet for our children and grandchildren so that they can go to school and not be shot. And uh, so that if when the the girls are teenagers, they get pregnant, they uh, have reproductive services. So... As I say, I'm not saying people shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, but but I'm not saying people shouldn't march, Michael. I'm just saying that we've got to come up with a unified strategy here, don't we? That's right. And and frankly, um, progressives, Democrats need to get more aggressive because the other side has always been willing to uh, make use of any angle that they have and to overstep the, the bounds at every turn. Here, you know, Democrats have to consider what mechanisms exist within the legal framework of our government to stop this madness. And one of the most important mechanisms that exists is to undo the vandalism that was done to our Supreme Court by Donald Trump and expand that court so that it is more representative of the people of this country. That is something now that my view is essential, because otherwise there's no way we can stop this onslaught uh, onslaught of uh, destruction that is being done by this activist, right, reactionary activist Supreme Court. So just in the last uh, couple of minutes then, uh, Michael Mann, just returning to your expertise in terms of atmospheric science, and every time there's an IPCC report, it's just more alarming than the last one. So we have a very narrow window to deal with global warming before it's too late and and you have this sort of reinforcing feedback loop that makes it almost impossible to stop the planet from overheating. Where do we stand there in terms of the ticking clock? Yeah, I mean, so the, the good news, if there's some good news there, is that we're, we're you know, there's no reason to believe that we are you know, at this point, yet committed to warming and changes in the climate that will be self-sustaining, that will trigger um, these uh, sort of uh, hothouse uh, feedback loops that some uh, scientists talk about, um, these sort of tipping points that, um, that, that make the, the warming self-sustaining. The best science, you know, the best available science tells us that if we bring our carbon emissions to zero within the next two decades. We bring them down by 50% in this decade. It's a monumental task. But if we can do that, then we can keep warming below one and a half Celsius, three degrees Fahrenheit, um, and that will prevent the worst consequences of climate change. So the good news is there is still time to act to prevent uh, further warming and further damage associated with that warming. Um, But that window is short. And again, if the United States is not taking a leadership position here, then it's difficult to see other countries like China and India doing their part. And we all have to do our part. We all have to work together if we are going to cut those carbon emissions in half within the next 10 years, which is what we need to do. And so this Supreme Court decision uh, is, you know, another body blow when it comes to our effort as a nation to meet our obligations and for the administration to meet its obligations to the rest of the world, the commitments that we, the United States, have made to the rest of the world when the Supreme Court is doing everything it can to handicap us. Um, 
that, you know, we have to fight back using every means at our disposal. Well, Marco Mann, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, Thank you, Ian. And I've been speaking with Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State, with joint appointments in the Department of Geosciences and the Earth and Environmental Systems Institute. He contributed with other IPCC authors to the award of the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize and in 2020 was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. And his latest book is The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking into how much Joe Manchin, Charles Koch, and the remaining coal barons are celebrating the Supreme Court's ruling in West Virginia versus the EPA. I don't want to set the world on fire I just want to start a flame in your heart in my Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Van Nostrum, who is director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, with a successful career as a partner in the environmental and natural resources practice group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Van Nostrand. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, James. And there you're there in West Virginia, and you've been fighting the good fight against the, <laughs> the state's industry, I guess, uh, coal. And uh, you've been up against the Democratic senator of the state, uh, who Joe Manchin, who was actually in the coal business. His family has a coal distribution company. So I imagine today Joe Manchin's happy, but how about the rest of the West Virginians? What What's the local response to the Supreme Court ruling in West Virginia, ruling for West Virginia in the case of West Virginia versus the EPA? Well, of course, the the Attorney General of West Virginia was the the leader in this litigation, West Virginia, along with 19 other states and a couple of coal companies. So, of course, there's the laudatory press release issued by the Attorney General. And the governor of West Virginia issued a similar press release, you know, going, saying what a great victory it is for the coal industry and reining in the the EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. So it's it's seen as a a big win for, for the coal industry and for West Virginia. Do they have any concept that global warming is the greatest threat to humanity and to the pleasant planet? I, that's not. I mean, Joe Joe Manchin has certainly acknowledged that in the past that human human activity does have an impact on climate change. I don't think you'll hear a whole lot of discussion of of the concentrations of greenhouse gas emissions and the correlation of that with temperature change. You won't hear a lot of that discussion among the political leaders in West Virginia. That's for sure. Well, the biggest source of CO2 apparently are automobiles, and something is being yes. done in that regard, in the, yeah. and switching to electric cars. It's not taking, not happening as fast as we need it, but at least it's happening. 
Yes. Coal-fired plants still represent 40% of greenhouse gases. They're incredibly easy to target because they're stationary sources. And the industry, the electric industry, generating industry, are trying to get away from it in any case. So, so it's almost like the Supreme Court, along with Joe Manchin and, the, and these coal companies, have got together and they're forcing this black poison down our throats. Yeah, I think if you look at the lineup of who, of which side the coal industry versus electric utilities were on in the in this EPA case, uh, most of the utility industry was on the, on the side of EPA. I think they frankly want some certainty. And I think there's a recognition, If you, even though the language in the, in the Supreme Court majority opinion acknowledges that the EPA projections at the time they adopted the Clean Power Plan said that the percentage of electricity generated from coal would decline from 38% in 2014 to 27% by 2030. And we now see as of 2021, without the Clean Power Plan ever having been implemented, that percentage is less than 22% in the United States. And so market forces are really driving this decarbonization that's happening and environmental regulations issued by the EPA really have very little to do with it. So there's a big claim of victory for the coal industry in West Virginia. Does it do anything to change the fundamental prospects of the coal industry for the future? No. Nothing at all. It might take away the ability of the EPA to make things worse by requiring carbon capture and sequestration, but the, the coal industry is on its way out due to cheaper natural gas and, and now very cost competitive wind and solar. So environmental regulations play a, a very little part in the, in the demise of the coal industry. But that's not to say that this decision is going to be helpful in any way, right? It's just, This decision uh, is going to hamper the EPA's ability in a broader context, isn't it? Yes. Not just the EPA. It, it definitely takes away, it, it basically says the, the the sweeping sort of change that the EPA had proposed in the Clean Power Plan, where they were directing utilities to more or less um, shift their generation away from coal to natural gas and renewables. They can't do that kind of a sweeping regulation under the limited authority that 111D of the Clean Air Act grants it. So it it basically hamstrings the EPA, takes away one of the tools that the EPA would have had to to adopt um, more aggressive regulations, even than the Clean Power Plan had envisioned, because we've largely accomplished um, the objectives of the Clean Power Plan by now. And more broadly, it's this this notion, this major questions doctrine that was used by the court today, it was used by the court in striking down the vaccine mandate in, in January. That's the direction this conservative court is going in terms of we're going to take away the ability of administrative agencies to adopt um, sweeping regulations or regulations with vast economic and political significance is the term that Justice Roberts used in the majority opinion. We're going to take away the ability of agencies to do those things in the absence of a specific grant of congressional authority. And and that's basically what they did here. They looked at 111D, the Clean Air Act, and they said EPA didn't have the authority to do what it purported to do when it adopted the Clean Power Plan. So it hamstrings EPA's ability in this case, and then more broadly, administrative agencies are going to have to be mindful of what is their specific statutory authority in the event the regulation they are adopting has arguably um, broad economic and political impacts. And again, I'm speaking with James Van Nostrand, who is director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law. 
with a successful career as a partner in the environmental and natural resources practice group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So what you're talking about there, James, is what is known as the non-delegation doctrine, which the uh, reactionary Supreme Court in the 1930s fighting uh, FDR and the New Deal um, right. were yeah. involved with, and it's been revived by this incredibly conservative exactly. Supreme Court. And of course, we all recall the uh, statement by Stephen Bannon saying, "We, since he's a strategist for the Trump administration, we are going to deconstruct the regulatory state." Correct. So, is that what's happening here? Yeah, it really is. They're they're grounding the decision in separation of powers. Congress enacts laws and the executive branch through administrative agencies implements and enforces the laws. And basically, under the major questions doctrine, they're saying, well, the agency got outside its lane, basically, because it didn't have an express grant of authority. And I certainly understand the argument in terms of separation of powers. In order for that to work, we actually have to have Congress be able to enact, enact statutes that address the issues. Uh, and that just hasn't happened in the area of energy and, and climate legislation. Um, you know, Back in 2009, the American Clean Energy and Security Act passed the House um, by a vote of 219 to 212, and it died in the Senate because they couldn't muster the necessary 60 votes to pass the filibuster. The same thing happening today. I mean, largely thanks to Joe Manchin. One, if it doesn't have money for the coal industry attached to it, it's not going to get his vote. But two, he's also expressed in, in, in the opposition doing anything to, to change the, the filibuster rule. So it takes 60 votes to get anything passed. And so very little gets passed. And so I think the whole major questions, Doctor, might make sense if you actually had a legislative branch that was capable of stepping up and addressing the issues but we don't. And so agencies are left to try to address these issues with the existing statutory authority. And now we have this decision coming along and the major, you know, the major questions doctrine is, is in the vaccine mandate case. Um, we're going to, we're going to look very closely at where you're getting your statutory authority. If the regulation you're adopting has broad economic and societal consequences. So what's your sense then of the connections that people are being are making to this conservative or indeed reactionary Supreme Court uh, to the fossil fuel industry. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, uh, today said basically this is a victory for the fossil fuel industries, implying that the conservative majority in the Supreme Court are, are in the pocket of the uh, fossil fuel companies. Are they? I mean, you're a lawyer, James, What's their legal reasoning that would lead you to believe that there's some higher purpose than doing the bidding of the oil and coal companies and the Koch brothers? I guess I don't necessarily look at this case. I mean, I, I haven't looked at sort of at the, you know, the personal financial holdings of the members of the Supreme Court. I, I'm not sure I would go down the path of saying this is this is a result of the influence of the fossil fuel industry. In my mind, the, the stars more or less aligned in a manner favorable to West Virginia and unfavorable to the planet, frankly. 
um, because we have these conservative justices that have now been appointed. Um, many of them have gone on record as not particularly liking Chevron deference, where agencies get a lot of, of deference. I mean, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch have all spoken out strongly against Chevron deference. And then Kavanaugh Explain joins Explain that, for, if you will, for our audience. The, Chevron the, deference, I mean, pretty much agencies will get, a, will get a pass. It's a very deferential standard of review. When an agency adopts a regulation, and it's challenge on appeal, reviewing court will say, well, is this a permissible interpretation of the statute? Is a reasonable interpretation of the statute? And the agency largely gets a, a pass. And so three of the justices had spoken out pretty strongly against Chevron deference. It, it grants the agencies too much authority. The judiciary should, should assert a stronger role in terms of saying what we think that statute means. And then we've had a couple more additions to the court. And in the case of Back to the fossil fuel point, I mean, Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh was on the D.C. Circuit when this case was argued when West Virginia first brought it against the Clean Power Plan. It was argued back in September of, of 2016, and Justice and then Judge Kavanaugh was very hostile to the position of EPA that it had the authority to do these things under, the, under Section 111D of the Clean Air Act. And then the D.C. Circuit, then later in the context of the Trump administration's affordable clean energy rule, reversed the Trump administration's rule and pretty much said the EPA had all the authority that the Obama administration claimed it did when it did the clean power plan. And then I think, and Kavanaugh, to, to me, I, I read this, Kavanaugh, this is a, a personal um, a personal deal for Kavanaugh in terms of, of his hostility to EPA taking this action under this section of the Clean Air Act. So he gets on the Supreme Court. We've already got three justices who are hostile to Chevron deference. They seem to like the major questions doctrine based on the vaccine mandate case that came down in, in January. So I look at it as the stars more or less aligned that says, we're going to use this case to strike down EPA's broad authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions um, under the Clean Air Act and assert the major questions doctrine. I don't I don't go beyond that in terms of saying, oh, this is a, a big win for the fossil fuel industry. I, I think it's more, I could be naive on this, but I think it's more the a fact that this is the case that the Supreme Court decided to take. And of course, they, you know, that was, a lot of the litigants in front of the court said, you shouldn't even be taking this case. The Trump, the Biden administration doesn't want the clean power plan. The Biden administration doesn't want the affordable clean energy rule. They're doing something new. There really is not a case or controversy pending in front of the court. This is like an advisory opinion. There's no live action. No one here is defending any of these rules that you're thinking about. Um, and so many people thought that should have just been dismissed as improvidently granted, which they did in the case just a couple weeks ago. But no, instead they took the case because they gave him a chance to really hold forth on the major questions doctrine. So you had an 18-page opinion, concurring opinion by Gorsuch going through the foundations for the major questions doctrine. And that is as a convenient, it's the pathway for this court to, going back to your point, Steve Bannon, deconstructing the regulatory state, the major questions doctrine gets you there because it pretty much takes away the agencies to, 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 to take aggressive positions or ambitious positions in terms of how they're going to implement existing statutory authority and says if it's a if it's a big deal if it has broad economic and political significance then you better point to specific congressional grant of authority we're not going to let you just imply it from your general grant of authority so just in the last couple of minutes then james just tell us what is in this opinion that's going to affect climate change and the future of this planet and the lives of our children and grandchildren. Will this decision prevent the government and government agencies from dealing with climate change? 
I th yeah, I think it. I think it severely hamstrings EPA's ability to use its existing statutory authority. You've you've now put a a clear damper on it. You've put this overview that says, don't try to read a statute aggressively. Um, stay within your lane. And so, uh, and I mean, the Biden administration had had basically stopped with its rulemaking. To, to adopt a successor to the Affordable Clean Energy Rule and the Clean Power Plan because we want to see the outcome of this case. And based on what the court says, it's clear that it got a six to three uh, decision from the Supreme Court that says you're not going to be able to move very aggressively under existing statutory authority. We expect Congress to, to provide specific delegation of authority to, to undertake this, this regulation. And so I think there, the EPA will proceed very cautiously. I don't think they want to get reversed in, in court again. So it will have, it will have that effect. Does it improve the prospects for the coal industry? No. Does it worsen the prospects for addressing climate change in a meaningful way by the United States? Yes, definitely. So it doesn't really help the coal industry because no. Wall Street and, and in particular that the electrical generating companies don't want don't want coal any rate, and it's going to hurt our ability to deal with with global warming, and the future of the planet and the future of our children. So, <laughs> is this just a personal grudge? Is that what you're telling us? I'm trying to figure out what what no, they're thinking. I mean, what planet are these guys on? I I th I think they really the it's it's back to the to limiting the power of regulatory agencies and they've really latched on this major questions doctrine. Mm -hmm. The fact is EPA had rarely used Section 111D of the Clean Air Act and it's and it's Obama had made the statement, look, if Congress doesn't act, I'm going to use my existing statutory authority under the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gases and address climate change. And so you have a court that says, no, we don't, we don't like the administrative agencies having that much authority. Regulating greenhouse gas emissions in the electric generation sector, that's a big deal. We expect Congress to specifically grant you that authority. You're not going to point to some assertedly obscure provision of the Clean Air Act and run with it. I mean, I think, I don't know that, I don't know they really focus, obviously, Justice Kagan did in her dissent, focused on the climate change impacts. The majority doesn't talk about it at all, but it is, it is a big deal. But I, I don't know that I would necessarily say it's 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 more of an endorsement of let's continue down the path of the major questions doctrine and curtail the authority of administrative agencies than really being a climate change case. But but it's you know obviously it's, it's an environmental agency that was before the court. So it's gonna it's gonna have a, a definite chilling effect on the EPA taking an ambitious reading of any of the of its statutory authority under the various environmental statutes. James Van Nostrand, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with James Van Nostrand, who is director of the Center for Energy and Sustainable Development and a professor of law at West Virginia University College of Law, with a successful career as a partner in the environmental and natural resources practice group of a large law firm based in the Pacific Northwest. He has represented energy clients in state regulatory proceedings in eight western states, as well as proceedings before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into the political impact of this unpopular ruling and whether young people whose future is being threatened by this decision will show up to vote in November. God reached his hand down from the sky. He flooded the land and he set it afire. He said, fear me again. No, I'm your father. Remember that no one can breathe underwater. Bend your knees and bow your heads. Say
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Gerard, a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Mastering Legal Matters, Navigating Climate Change, Its Impact and Effects on Green Buildings and Trading Programs. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Girard. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And this uh, decision today from the Supreme Court in West Virginia versus the EPA seems to be a devastating decision for the government's ability to deal with climate change. Do you see it in that light? Because a lot of the focus in this opinion, Robertson in particular, and Gorsuch's opinion as well, was about the major questions doctrine, which we can talk about. And that sounds a lot like the non-delegation doctrine that FDR was dealing with back in the early days of the New Deal. But that aside, let's start with the ruling itself. Is this a devastating blow to the ability for the United States government to deal with the greatest existential threat that we face to the survival of, our, of this planet and the lives of our children and grandchildren? No, it's a negative decision. It's really going to hurt, but it's not devastating. It invalidated one regulation that EPA was using, but there is plenty else that EPA can do that others can do that's not affected by this decision. So what about, though, particularly Gorsuch's opinion about the major questions doctrine? How different is that from the non-delegation doctrine that FDR was stuck against with that ultra-conservative Supreme Court back in the early 1930s uh, that was frustrating his efforts to deal with the Great Depression? Well, of course, what Gorsuch uh, wrote and joined by Alito was just those two. It wasn't the decision of the court, and so it's not it's not binding. But they were using the non-delegation doctrine, which is what... Uh, was used against FDR. The non-delegation doctrine basically says that only Congress can make important policy decisions. They can't delegate it to federal agencies. That doctrine has only been used twice in history, both times in 1935 to strike down New Deal laws. Uh, but it's uh, some of the justices uh, uh, led by want to bring it back, but they didn't get the majority uh, to go along with them in this case, uh, which is not to say they won't try it in some other case. Well, that's the frightening prospect, isn't it? You recall that Stephen Bannon, Trump's strategist, uh, said that our goal is to deconstruct the administrative state. Should we be concerned that that's on the agenda? Yeah, well, the series of decisions we're seeing from the Supreme Court, they're really moving hard right. And uh, one part of the equation, one part of the agenda seems to be to make it harder for administrative agencies to, to act, to, to take away their their discretion. There was the decision a couple of months ago where they said that the Occupational Safety and Health Administration couldn't enforce its regulation on uh, uh, vaccination and, and testing for covid um, they said that was beyond the power of OSHA, even though lots of people were contracting COVID in the workplace and dying. That would seem to be clearly within 
the power of OSHA. Um, um, that uh, the decision that just came out today is restricting EPA's ability to regulate greenhouse gases. Although you think the greenhouse gases are squarely within EPA's power, uh, so I think there is an agenda at work that is trying to reduce the power of federal agencies, at least when uh, that power is being deployed against corporations. So West Virginia, of course, is coal country. And uh, as far as I know, and there's been a lot of coverage on this, that the electrical generating companies in this country are moving away from coal. And then they were using uh, natural gas as a bridge fuel, but they're also getting a lot of solar and wind now as it's coming online. So this decision is about the EPA's ability to get the electrical generating companies to switch from fossil fuels to renewables, isn't it? Isn't that at the heart of it? Yeah, basically to go to move away from coal. Um, and the plaintiffs in this case were West Virginia and um, and several other coal states and some coal companies. The electric utility industry was on the other side. They appeared at the Supreme Court in support of what EPA was trying to do. Um, but the uh, it, it's mostly the, the coal companies and the coal states that didn't want EPA to exercise this power. So is that to say that the Supreme Court is going against the electoral generating companies' business plans, that they want to get cheaper cleaner energy, and they're being forced to go back to dirty coal? Is that what's happening? Uh, no, the court, the decision doesn't force the utilities to uh, stick with coal. Um, if the utilities want to move to renewables, they can. It's, it's just preventing EPA from requiring the movement away from coal. I see. So what's the consequences then? I'm just wondering the... Uh, the level of alarm that we should feel, because what I'm hearing, for example, from the governor of California is this is a, a victory for the fossil fuel companies and for Charles Koch and the Koch, of the Koch brothers. Well, the, the Koch brothers were certainly supporting the litigation. We need to get rid of all of the coal-fired power plants in the United States if we're going to meet our climate goals. Um, coal... Coal plants are now the second largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S. behind motor vehicles. There are about 230 of them left. Um, uh, when Obama came in, there were more than 500. So they're they're dying off, but not fast enough. We need to get rid of them faster and couple it with just transition, with, with, with ways to um, protect the, the workers and the communities that, that rely on coal, which are also it's also an important part of the plans. But this is going to slow down the essential move against coal, uh, move away from coal. So they're low hanging fruit. Then is that what you're telling us, uh, Michael? That because they're stationary sources, and they what about forty percent of uh, greenhouse gases come from what's left of these coal burning plants, even though. Uh, a little less, been, than, less than that now, uh, because so many of them have shut down and have been mostly replaced by gas. Right. So, But the fact that they're low-hanging fruit, I mean, they, they're stationary sources, right? They're easy to deal with. Automobiles are 60%, you said. There is a transition underway, but you know, electrical cars aren't inexpensive enough for the average motorist. But we're in that, at least on that trajectory. And the, and the electrical companies are moving away from coal. This feels like a reactionary 
movement on the part of the Supreme Court going back to the past as opposed to dealing with the future. Is that a fair way to, to see it? Well, I'd say it's impeding EPA's ability to require moving into the future as quickly as we want to. Uh, and it certainly is a decision that has the effect of favoring uh, fossil fuel, favoring coal. So Joe Manchin, whose family company is, is a coal distribution company, he's got to be happy with this decision. Yeah. So, you know, the principal reason we don't have um, some of the climate legislation we want is that uh, Manchin is standing in the way. Is You know, we've got a tied Senate, and uh, Manchin is from a coal state and is personally heavily invested in coal. And if there were binding conflict of interest rules on members of Congress, that couldn't happen, but we don't have that. And again, I'm speaking with Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia's University's Earth Institute, has written more than, and edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Mastering Legal Matters, Navigating Climate Change, Its Impacts and Effects on Green Buildings and Trading Programs. So these decisions from the Supreme Court, Michael, have been coming thick and fast, and there have been a lot of body blows uh, against the ability of blue states to have gun safety regulation and uh, taking away women's reproductive rights in Roe v. Wade and Casey. Uh, and now you've got this EPA body blow as well. What can people do in the sense that, I mean, we're getting battered here uh, by reactionary rulings, that some of which make absolutely no sense. I mean, for example, the gun ruling that started out uh, this devastating period of his decisions, had that gun law that the Supreme Court has now made law been in place on January the 6th, those people that Trump sent up to the Capitol, some of whom were armed, in, in if that law were in place, they'd almost all be armed, and we would have had mayhem and bloodshed uh, on the Capitol of the United States. So just that, that decision alone has left me scratching my head, thinking, what planet are these people on? How much do you see this court as an outlier here in terms of, uh, of where the American people are? And what can the American people do about it? Well, it's very dangerous. And in all these decisions that you're talking about, the gun rights, the women's reproductive rights, and, uh, and climate change, public opinion is very much on the other side of the Supreme Court. So the most important thing that can be done right now is to have a large turnout in the midterm elections coming up in November. And if the Democrats were to hold the House and have at least two more seats in the Senate, they could turn a whole lot of things around. Uh, they could end the filibuster and they could pass laws on reproductive rights and gun rights and climate change. Um, so uh, that is by far the most important thing that could be done at this stage is uh, is holding the House and increasing the Democratic majority in the Senate. And they'd have to get 60 seats in the Senate, wouldn't they? Well, no, it's, uh, a simple majority could get rid of the filibuster rule. Uh, that's not I in see. the Constitution. It's just a Senate rule. But uh, Senator Manchin and Senator 
cinema from Arizona have been refusing to do that. That's why if we had two more Democrats who were willing to do that, then we could have a big shift. So that's doable, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the polling isn't so good right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, thing, things change. Uh, Biden has gotten a lot of uh, heat over oil prices, which have, he has very little to do with, very little control over it, and, and, and inflation, which is caused by a lot of things, supply chain and, and so forth. But uh, we'll see if things turn around, and we'll see if there's enough public outrage over this series of Supreme Court decisions to bring out more Democratic voters. And in terms of your field, the law, Michael Gerard. Does the Supreme Court have the final word here? Is there any anything that lawyers lawyers can do? They have the final judicial rule, but Congress can uh, overturn a lot of this stuff. Um, and so, in our system of government, uh, you know, there's no higher court than the Supreme Court. Uh, although, you know, there are going to be a lot of cases about how do you interpret these new decisions. Um, but uh, Congress could uh, undo all of these. So again, the answer is for people to vote, to, to hold the Democrats to hold the House, and to pick up at least two new seats in this in the U.S. Senate. That's right. To vote and and make sure their friends vote and and register to vote and don't be intimidated by the efforts in some states to get people not to vote. And in terms of where you see this ruling, how much can you motivate? young people to vote who they normally don't vote in fact most people don't vote in midterms that that's just a tradition unfortunately but how much do you think this decision could be focused on the young voters in this country and those turning 18 uh, before november um, i think that a lot of attention needs to be uh, paid to try to do that remember that in the 2018 midterm election after Trump had been in for two years. The House flipped to Democratic, uh, largely because there was a big turnout from uh, from young people and from um, uh, black people and, 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 other, um, uh, and other groups who were so outraged against uh, Trump. And so if we have similar outrage uh, this time uh, directed against uh, the Trumpification of the Republican Party and and his takeover of the Supreme Court, uh, then maybe we will have uh, a shift. But uh, we really need to get young people to come out and vote and, and, and make them, you know, realize it is their futures that, that are at stake. So you can make that argument as a result of this decision that this has increased the likelihood of us not being able to deal with the greatest problem that we face and the planet face and humanity face, which is global warming. Um, how far can you go down that argument path, Michael, in terms of the point of no return, which a lot of scientists tell us about is happening with global warming? Well, it's not just this decision, of course, because the, there are a lot of Republican judges at every level now, and they uh, may be striking down other things that uh, the Biden administration wants to do. If the Republicans take over Congress, that'll make it uh, next time it'll be much harder for Biden to... Uh, to pursue his environmental agenda and other agendas. And then, of course, we will see what happens with the next presidential election. But um, with the U.S. federal government uh, action on climate change or lack of climate, lack of action affects not only the U.S., but the rest of the world. The rest of the world looks at the U.S. and says, U.S., you're 
country is historically the largest contributor of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, the greatest cause of the threat. You're the richest country in the world. And if you're not acting, why should we? So what the U.S. does or doesn't do really matters. It matters fundamentally to what kind of future today's young people uh, will have. And I hope that today's young people who are turning 18 recognize that and turn out and vote. So, in effect, what you're saying is that the Republican Party does not want us to have a livable world. I mean, surely that's a hell of a powerful message, isn't it? That's not the way they put it, but that's the reality. That's the outcome. Well, I hope uh, you know somebody starts <laughs> framing it in those terms. Uh, don't we need a clarion call here, Michael? Just in closing. We absolutely do. We need uh, young people and not so young people to turn out and vote and recognize the tremendous stakes that are uh, uh, that are involved here, both for climate change and for so many other areas of of uh, social policy. Well, Marco Gerardo, thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Gerard, who's a professor of professional practice at Columbia Law School, where he teaches courses on environmental law, climate change law, and energy regulation, and is the director of the Center for Climate Change Law. He also chairs the faculty of Columbia University's Earth Institute and has written or edited 13 books, including Global Climate Change and U.S. Law, the leading work in its field, and the 12-volume Environmental Law Practice Guide. And his latest book is Mastering Legal Matters, Navigating Climate Change, Its Impacts and Effects on Green Buildings and Trading Programs. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.